I really went on to argue how the BIIGC was neglected and I suppose happily with peace didn't seem needed. Its functions didn't seem to be required. It was set up to look at non-devolved areas and as more and more areas became devolved, especially policing, it didn't seem to have the same functions. So to quote from the agreement, at 1998 agreement, its role was to bring together British and Irish governments to promote bilateral cooperation on all matters of mutual interest within the competence of both governments. So that would mean the non-devolved areas. And my argument is that Brexit and post-Brexit raises issues and the instability we see in Northern Ireland, which obviously is not the way things used to be, but nevertheless is concerning, that all of this points to a need for the BIIGC to be very active again, and perhaps it was always needed. So that's really the main argument, and I then examine why it hasn't been. Hello and welcome to this month's Aaron's Podcast. I'm Rory Montgomery. This month's guest is Attain Tannum, who's Professor of International Peace Studies at Trinity College Dublin. And she's also a member of the Steering Committee of the Aaron's Project. She's the author of a paper published recently called The British-Irish Relationship and the Centrality of the British-Irish Intergovernmental Conference. Now, in a change from usual practice, I'm acting um, as a discussant today because I actually wrote a response to Attain's paper. Uh, I'm a former Irish diplomat, uh, an honorary professor at Queen's University Belfast's Mitchell Institute, and like Attain, a member of the Steering Committee uh, of Ireland's. So, Attain, maybe we could kick off by just um, outlining you know, a summary of, of your paper and what your main points in it are. I suppose it was a semi-academic theoretical paper and also practical, empirical about why the British-Irish relationship is so important and why, in my view, the British-Irish Intergovernmental Conference is so central. And it was based primarily on John Hume's uh, model for peace and the peace process and the agreement itself, whereas Rory, you know more than I, um, it was based on the three strands approach of looking at internal relations in Northern Ireland, North-South, or what used to be called cross-border uh, in my time as a student, relations on the island, and then the British-Irish relationship as well. But the Hume model was really based very much on the EU model of a very dense and complex institutional system that brought heads of government together so successfully in the EU. And he modelled his ideas about reconciliation, which was a word he used so often, um, on the necessity of having a British-Irish formalised um, institutional system for cooperation. And that that was the key to bringing compromise in Northern Ireland and to framing and strategising a process that would lead to peace. So the first point in the paper was really that that was the rationale for having this institutionalised forum. And it first, I suppose, in an earlier guise was in the Anglo-Irish Agreement. And as Rory, you pointed out in the response, it was much hated by unionists and there is still a dislike of these intergovernmental bodies um, because of a, a perception of undue Irish interference or an erosion of sovereignty. So the first part of the paper is dealing with that theoretically um, 
John Hume's ideas have a sort of large evidence base in international relations theory. American theorists um, developed models as well about how international institutions advance cooperation in the interests of its members. So there's a strong empirical academic part to it. Um, but which, my, uh, which I've learned in your paper is called rational institutionalism. Yeah, it can have different names, but that, I think that that would be the one used. So it's it's not idealistic, but yet it's it, it is focused on cooperation. Um, so that was really the main framework. And then I really went on to argue how the BIIGC was neglected. And I suppose happily with peace didn't seem needed. Its functions didn't seem to be required. It was set up to look at non-devolved areas. And as more and more areas became devolved, especially policing, it didn't seem to have the same functions. So to quote from the agreement, at 1998 agreement, its role was to bring together British and Irish governments to promote bilateral cooperation on all matters of mutual interest within the competence of both governments. So that would mean the non-devolved areas. And my argument is that Brexit and post-Brexit raises issues and the instability we see in Northern Ireland, which obviously is not the way things used to be, but nevertheless is concerning that all of this points to a need for the BIIGC to be very active again, and perhaps it was always needed. So that's really the main argument, and I then examine why it hasn't been. Well, when it comes back to the origins of the BIIGC, I mean, it's interesting looking back that the emphasis on Strand 3, the East-West relationship, was largely... Uh, a unionist uh, preoccupation uh, during the negotiations and in a way the British-Irish Council came out of that. So far as I can recall, the BIIGC wasn't actually much discussed um, you know, in the in the negotiations. I think it was essentially seen by the Irish government uh, as a way of continuing uh, its input on non-devolved matters, as you, as you rightly said, which included policing and justice above all. Uh, and it was also there, I suppose, as a kind of a fail-safe, uh, in, in theory at least, if the devolved institutions failed to function. Um, though at the same time, of course, the agreement says that all of the institutions are interdependent and interlocked. Uh, so, in fact, the BWIGC, in practice, um, never did meet um, much of at all um, when the institutions were, uh, the other institutions were suspended. Um, so... What's the difference? I mean, just for for the general for the general listenership, as it were, what what's the difference between the BIIGC and and the BIC, the BIC? Well, the BIC brings together um, the governments from Scotland, Wales, uh, Westminster, um, Northern Ireland, and Ireland, and the Dominion, uh, the Crown dependencies. So, as you've said, they're both part of the strand three of the East West dimension. But my, uh, well, I read out about the BIC. It really brings together um, the governments to discuss matters of mutual concern and to engage in policy learning and exchange. So one of the differences is that I suppose it has been regarded more as a talking shop and as a consultative body. A number of academics and practitioners have perhaps criticised it on that basis. John Coakley has written about it, the currently honorary professor in Queen's, former IBIS UCD. He has written about it as well in that light. So it's quite different because the the impression is it's really there to deal with functional economic areas um, of policy, to engage in policy learning and policy exchange. I noticed in the um, release of the um, government archives last week, 
that one of the um, Northern Ireland office officials, I think you probably remember this more as you were directly involved, uh, stated that he thought it had a lot of potential to develop in the future, but it hasn't. Um, but nevertheless, I agree. I mean, if, if the implication is, could that not also be important? I think, yes, it could be. But it's it's range of areas seems to be less strategic and more practical policy. Um, so I think that would be one difference. One difference in its favour is that it meets regularly and that that was stipulated in the agreement, whereas the BIIGCs, I think it was requested or stated it should meet regularly, but not every six months. The BIC says every it, it meets every six months. So from what you've just said, I can see now why that's the case, that the BIIGC really wasn't much emphasised. Well, yes, well, indeed. I mean, you you point out in your article that there have been some extremely long gaps between meetings of the BWIGC. Yeah. Um, so the last one before this current period of, of Brexit was 2007. Um, and again, it then really fell into abeyance, partly and largely because of the success of the peace process, um, the devolution of policing, as I said. Um, and also um, the Irish government, as again, you well know as former ambassador to the EU as well, was involved in austerity negotiations um, and the bailout and, and went from one crisis to another, really. Um, so I think that was a factor as well. So I think it just was not seen as being as necessary. I'd be interested if only uh, John Humer is still here and, and had been well uh, throughout to know what his view was, because most definitely, as I said, it was very central to the the stability of, of the situation in Northern Ireland to the peace process. And also, as you've just noted, the three strands are stated as being interlocking and interdependent. So it would imply they're all equally, if not, you know, it could potentially be more important. So I think there are the reasons, um, you know, that it didn't meet regularly. Um, maybe in hindsight, I would argue, and, and I, I'm sure many practitioners might too, that it should have met regularly to keep I think a strategic framework. Um, Mick Fealty, the founding editor of Slugger O'Toole, said a couple of years ago that there was a sense that Northern Ireland hadn't matured yet into, I suppose, being a, a stable democracy in quite the same way. Um, so in, in I suppose specifically that sectarianism still exists, so that there was a need, in my view, for more monitoring and shaping of things. Um, but it didn't, for the reasons we said. No, I think you, the reasons you've given are... Are, are are the right ones. I mean, to some extent, they are the um, result of success in that the, there was a relative degree of political stability uh, over a number of years from 2007 on. And also, of course, as policing and justice were devolved, that narrowed the, the scope uh, of things to talk about. But I think also a certain sense maybe in both governments that, you know, they needn't give as high a priority to Northern Ireland, the Irish government in part for the reasons that you you, you mentioned. Also, I think the the change from a Fianna Fáil government largely to a Fine Gael Labour government in 2011 probably did have a degree of relevance in that I think the, 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 the Fianna Fáil Taoiseach Brian Cowan, the Minister of Foreign Affairs, Michael Martin, uh, were much more personally engaged in Northern Ireland matters in office than Enda Kenny or, or even Gilmore were, um, not saying they weren't interested, uh, but they had so many other things on their on their plate. But when you come to look at the British government, I mean, one of the striking things is that when you come to the British Irish Council, which you were talking about earlier, 
Um, no British Prime Minister has ever attended a meeting of the British Irish Council, to my to my knowledge, whereas the Taoiseach and the First Ministers of, of Scotland and, and Wales and so on, and the, joint, the, joint, the First Minister, Deputy First Minister in the North, do go. Uh, I was actually present at the very first meeting of the BWIGC, um, which was in early December 1999, just after the institutions went live. It was in Downing Street. Um, but again, that is, I think, the only occasion in which a British Prime Minister has formally taken part in a meeting of the BWIGC as as such. But, of course, the, there have been other ways of, um, you, you know, keeping discussions going between the governments. And in particular, I suppose, the meeting between or the, the programme set out by Enda Kenny and, and David Cameron in 2012, which, in a way, could have easily enough fitted into the BWIGC framework, um, but but didn't. Yeah, that meeting was, I suppose, given a lot of publicity and it was so much the heyday, it seemed, of British-Irish relations with the royal visit and President Higgins' visit as well to, to England. But it didn't really take off, I think, you know, for various reasons, again, Brexit being one of them. And also what was stipulated, I think, was an annual meeting, which, again, according to the logic of John Hume and of the agreement, would not be enough, that there needed to be a very below-the-radar, regularised set of meetings occurring. And I think one of the problems is with the BIIGC now, given unionist dislike for it, the fact that it wasn't meeting regularly and becoming normalised as such makes it harder in some ways to resurrect, although, as you said earlier before we spoke, it has now been meeting and, and plans to meet more regularly. But I agree there are other ways and other formats where bilateral meetings can occur I think my, my feeling about or my belief about the BIIGC is that it's integral to the agreement. So that's one point that the agreement itself, as we know, has some critics now quite strongly um, in Northern Ireland uh, from some of the unionist community. And that by unpicking one aspect or not using it robustly, I think to me it can threaten in some ways the whole agreement at this stage, given all the challenges that are faced. And I assume it's for that reason that in the Irish government's programme for government in 2020, it does state that the BIIGC and BIC and the agreements institutions must all be used more robustly. Um, so I think there's a, a more holistic implication about the agreement itself mm. and getting it to maximise its potential. As you stated in your inaugural lecture in Queen's, while it's a wonderful agreement and has had amazing achievements, it has not achieved the potential that was hoped in terms of reconciliation. So I think the BIIGC, why it and not some other new and new bilateral arrangement? I think firstly because it's central to the agreement and the agreement is central to stability. So it needs to be strengthened overall and the interlocking and interdependency of the strands. Um, and I think secondly, it, it was set up you know, the wording, even if it was not given much thought, the wording fits very precisely the challenges that are faced by Brexit. And again, you were talking before this meeting about the last meeting in December of the BIIGC, where it is dealing with some of these Brexit issues like the protocol, for example, um, that are so important and, and now need more strategy in the years ahead, um, particularly when we are not, when the UK is not in the EU anymore, there aren't going to be corridor talks. So I, I think also um, there is a strong argument to be made that if you have an institution there that can fulfil these tasks that are needed, then use it, apart from the necessity of it for the agreement's uh, full implementation. Um, so I think that's the second reason. I think, though, it's not mutually exclusive. So 
you know, there can be other networks as well. I mean, the more the better, because as you know, again, more than me, um, we're losing such an, a, a chance and opportunity for networking with Brexit, that all those networks where um, the ambassador to uh, the US, Daniel Mulhall, I, I know in his presentation to the House of Lords committee said that the numbers of meetings that would have occurred between British and Irish officials in one week was so immense. And then there would be informal talks after that. So the loss of that implies other institutions would be welcome too. But I think the BIIGC shouldn't be replaced in any way by those other institutions. Yeah, we can we go on to talk a little later on um, in a few moments about the question of whether the BIIGC is the right vehicle for for wider for the wider relationship to be developed, uh, but just to say, uh, I was involved um, from twenty fourteen to twenty sixteen um, in meetings, if you like, um, under the the Kenny Cameron initiative. There was an annual meeting of permanent secretaries and secretaries general, um, and I vividly remember uh, one which was held on the very same day that Theresa May made her speech. Uh, to the Tory party conference in October 2016 where she set out initially her Brexit red lines and I still remember we, we went, we'd had a nice dinner in the foreign office and we, the British officials were slightly relaxed because the political masters were all away in Brighton or wherever it was uh, and then we went over to the pub uh, and we discovered by meeting in fact Simon Case who's now the cabinet secretary and at that stage was May's private secretary um, what she had said and so there was general consternation but I suppose anecdotes aside um, I suppose what I found was that there was a certain sense um, of casting around for things to talk about that there were areas where there was natural cooperation very strongly for example between the Department of Justice and the Home Office on things like asylum and police cooperation and that was something which went back a long long way uh, and then there would naturally have been discussions let's say between the Department of Finance and the Treasury I mean there are quite regular meetings between them which have grown up over the last number of years but in other areas there was a certain sense at times that you were looking for things to do for example in Foreign Affairs the two the Secretary General of Foreign Affairs um, Niall Burgess and, and Simon MacDonald who was the British colleague agreed to go on a joint trip to Sierra Leone and while that was, you know, obviously, you know, worth doing, and we both have interests in Sierra Leone and missions, you know, it wasn't exactly a, a major uh, initiative, if you, if 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 you like. Um, so I think, in a way, you know, we can come back to that in a moment. But I think there is always a, you know, a question of filling um, structures with with a degree of of of, of substance and, and content as well. But maybe you've you've already spoken about the impact of Brexit. I mean, on the relationship, and of course, it's been you know extremely difficult for all the reasons we we know, and we don't maybe have to rehearse. Uh, but I think I suppose there is a sense that you know Brexit is in a way or has been a kind of a wrecking ball um, for the agreement as as a whole. I mean, wrecking ball is too strong, but it's certainly damaged all aspects, including the BWIGC. Yeah, I agree. And I suppose again, you know more about this than me, but I think what's been particularly shocking is how the rules of the game seem to have changed with the British government's behaviour from the sort of behaviour and framework I had grown up with, um, you know, from the 80s onwards particularly, but particularly the 90s. So the, you know, the, the emphasis on bilateral strategy and working together and joined up thinking um, and, and framing issues so as to be less destabilising um, and, and to nurture cooperation. All of those norms seem to have changed very much since Brexit, uh, largely because the British government's 
behaviour. So I think, yes, in, in so many ways, as we know, and we don't need to rehearse it, it's been very damaging. And, and for that reason, going back to what you were saying, which is really interesting about your experience on the um, Permanent Sex Committee that you said was set up and you were there, I, I think now there are issues to be discussed. There, I assume there would not be so much trouble filling the agenda, uh, perhaps sadly, um, because of the different challenges faced. The, the irony was, yes, of course, that in a way I, I remember, you know, from the British general election in 2015 um, onwards, you know, after which it was clear there was going to be a referendum, um, while Brexit might not have been a formal item on the agenda, uh, it was certainly the thing which most interested pretty well everybody there. Um, one of the, I suppose, problems, and well, problem in a kind of bureaucratic sense, um, is that while, of course, the protocol is a subject of enormous interest to both governments. Um, of course, it's not formally on the agenda of PWIGC meetings because, of course, it's handled between the British government and the Commission. Um, so we've always been in this awkward position of having a huge interest and, of course, being open to conversations, but not in any way being seen to negotiate. Now, of course, the meeting between Leo Varadkar and Boris Johnson in the Wirral in October uh, 2019 was really important in, in moving things along towards a, a resolution, which we thought was permanent, but um, you know, well, let's hope it still is. But in general, that's something the Irish government tries to tries to avoid. Um, but if we come back to this question of whether the BWIGC is the right vehicle for the wider British-Irish relationship, and as you say, there are you know various formats one could envisage, um, but clearly you think that the agreement both mandate the BWIGC to do this and, and that it makes sense to, to use it for that purpose. Yes, I do. Um, I mean, mandates, I suppose, could be a legal term. I suppose it, I can't say legally it mandates it, but I, I think um, it does. I think the logic and the spirit of the agreement was very much mm. that it should be central, even though, again, it was interesting that you said it wasn't emphasised that much in, in the negotiation and BIC was, was more emphasised. So I think, um, yeah, I think it is very central and, and it goes back to the old Anglo-Irish agreement and of course that raises problems as you've said and as you've written um, because unionists have been so negative about that and I think that's one of your um, reasons why you would you know discuss whether the BIIGC is the appropriate institution but I, I think the centre of it is and, and again it's interesting talking about the agendas and what would it talk about the centre of it is planning and strategy and I fully understand the difficulties now in getting sucked into being perhaps an advocate for the British government or in some way being used in its relationship with the EU when we are part of the EU and it is I, I can only imagine and I know it is extremely tricky but at the same time one of the things that from the archives also I noted was John Major's um, conversation that there should be more intense structured negotiations with the Irish government over the problems faced then back in the 90s, but in a way that wasn't obvious that, you know, discussions on the corridors of Brussels weren't enough. So the decision was made to talk about EU strategy ostensibly, but actually to be using it to, to try and, and create stability and frame policy. And I found that very intriguing as someone who wasn't involved. Yes. Um, so I think the similar kind of logics can apply to this, not in any way threatening our relationship with the EU, but that 
there is a need for strategy from the governments. And it's very tricky because of Northern Ireland, because it's devolved. And again, for the reasons you've said, it's equally tricky not to be seen to be interfering in the autonomy of the institutions in Northern Ireland. But I I think that the, the agreement mandates an approach that frames and and is in a sense like guardians, which I think is a term that uh, Michal Martin has used, that gar- is a guardian of the agreement and the stability pro- in no- stability in Northern Ireland. Yeah, in a way, um, going back again to the origins of the BWIGC, and and as you say, I mean, I think the, the old um, Deng Xiaoping uh, line that it doesn't matter if a cat is black or white as long as it catches mice, and the important thing is to have a structure um, in which the governments will talk r- regularly on a range of issues, and on the question of what they might talk about, um, well, we can just run through in a, in a second um, the various things which have been on the agenda of the most recent uh, BWIGC. Uh, but the EU issues is an obvious one because leaving the protocol aside even, it seems to me that there's an enormous amount the Irish government can do as a way, as a kind of, you know, an interpreter uh, of EU developments to the British government. Now, very difficult at the moment, given that the British government is adopting such a hostile and, and belligerent approach to the EU across lots of different areas. But in the future, you'd like to believe, I mean, of course, the British government has its own uh, diplomatic service, excellent diplomatic service that has its own contacts with you know every member state of the Union. It has still quite a large mission in Brussels, but still, I think that's a useful, a useful area. I suppose that in a way, though, the, the question about the border relationship, as I say, I think the, certainly in its origins, um, you know, this was very much uh, seen as a successor to the Anglo-Irish Intergovernmental Conference uh, and very much, therefore, focused on Northern Ireland. And the most detailed sections um, of the agreement are, of the paragraphs uh, on the BWC are, are about that. Uh, and some of the language about the broader bilateral relationship actually goes back to the even earlier body, the British-Irish Council, um, which was set up by Hawhey and Thatcher, um, and the, even the phrase totality of relationships appears in the first sentence of the BWIGC. Um, and as you say, I think one other issue is the, the attitude of unionists, um, which is that, you know, for David Trimble um, in the negotiations, um, I think, you know, he had two overriding objectives. Uh, one was to ch- see the change to the Irish constitution, and the other was to see the scrapping of the Anglo-Irish agreement. And of course, he achieved both objectives, uh, but, of course, many aspects of the BWIGC, as I said, simply reproduce you know, the Anglo-Irish Intergovernmental Conference. And, of course, there is a sentence which, if it were taken seriously um, and literally by the governments, this, this you know, concept that there would be relevant executive members of the administration will be involved in members' meetings of the conference. Now, that hasn't happened, in part, of course, because getting the executive to turn up, I suppose, as one um, as one would, would not be easy. But there is another area which is interesting and which I just was reminded of when I was reading this is that, of course, the idea was that the conference, as you say, would keep under review the workings of the agreement as a whole and would publish a review three years after the um, agreement into, came into effect. Now, that never happened, um, though it did happen, funnily enough, three years after the Anglo-Irish agreement. There was a similar um, clause then and, and there was a review um, of the Anglo-Irish agreement at the time. But you're right. I mean, it it does have certainly a, a role in 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 that. Um, you've kind of sort of addressed this already. But I mean, in terms of strengthening and re-energizing the BWIGC, 
I mean, I suppose one thing you've highlighted is that it actually has to meet. And I, and I suppose, as you said, there have been some encouraging signs on that front um, of late. Yep, um, it met in December and it is due to meet in June or May, trying to, um, again, or maybe yeah. they didn't mention a date, but it, it early implied in the early, it would be Early in 2022, I think it said. Oh, okay, even sooner, sorry. So I think, um, you know, it, it seems there is more of a driving force to meet regularly. There is, I assume, and again, you'd know this more than me, even though I know you are retired, but there is, I'd say, a lot of um, onus if it is to meet on the Irish government to maintain the British government's interest and commitment to meeting on it, partly because of unionist sensitivity and really opposition to it, also because the British government has such a huge agenda now, I mean, even bigger than before. And in your response to my paper, you wrote that smaller states always have more trouble getting attention from the larger state. So I think there is a decision to be made about where the Irish government places its diplomatic resources, given it faces new demands too. Uh, Charlie Flanagan was speaking at uh, Irish Association for Contemporary European Studies event before Christmas and, and was arguing that we need to put more attention on the, on developing alliances with smaller states in the EU. Now we don't have the UK where we were often you know close to. So there's so many decisions, but I think obviously from the last meeting's statement, there is a commitment now from the Irish government uh, to put resources into this and the British government did agree um, to meet um, early in 2022. So for me, that is good news and shows that commitment and acknowledgement of its centrality to the agreement and it's in the programme for government, as I said. And I think also Claire Sugden, the unionist politician, spoke in Trinity last year with you and she um, you know, argued that perceptions matter whether they're wrong or right and unionists do not perceive the agreement to have worked for them in a fair way. So my argument in the paper too is that, um, and it's also an argument made with Connor Kelly, the um, student in Birkbeck and research assistant in UCL, that it can be made more viable and helpful to unionists than it has seemed, because some unionists obviously perceive this to to advance nationalist interests or to advance the interests of Sinn Féin, for example. So in reviewing and in thinking about it uh, um, in the in future years, my argument has been that it should be made seen to be not a threat, but actually something useful um, to unionists in a way that it hasn't. So more attention needs to be given to perceptions of parity and fairness and not that in some way unionists have lost out. Well, that's a, that's a whole... A whole wider debate, of course, about many aspects of the uh, agreement. Yeah, as you say, I mean, in my note, I I did point out that in general, um, smaller countries know more and care more about their big neighbours than 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 vice versa. Uh, And in a way, the fact that no British Prime Minister has taken part in a meeting of the BIC, it's quite tells its its story. But equally, as we were identifying earlier, there are lots of things. Uh, which the two governments could be talking about, both Northern Ireland related and, of course, legacy has been a big theme of recent meetings, possibly the biggest theme, uh, as far as I I know. Um, But in fact, looking at the agenda for December, the topics are kind of divided between those which are broader and those which are more Northern Ireland limited. So, you know, East-West relationship in general, economic cooperation, COP26, climate change, the functioning of the common travel area, the response to COVID, those are all things which are of broader um, significance. And that security cooperation, including in relation to Northern Ireland, rights in Northern Ireland, legacy, 
and the rather um, vague um, heading political stability, which basically means talking about whatever is happening in Northern Ireland at any at any given point. Um, but as I say, the, the key thing is always in these matters to find, to, to, make, the, to make things interesting. And I always remember that um, you know, my very good friend and, and colleague Tim O'Connor, um, who was the first Joint Secretary of the North-South Ministerial Council from the Irish side, his great philosophy was no surprises, um, and that which meant that when the leaders turned up or the ministers turned up, you know, everything would have been kind of pre-cooked so that there wouldn't be disputes. And that was in some ways a very good idea um, and it probably was necessary early on, but it had the consequence of making the politicians very bored uh, and in some cases quite reluctant to attend. Um, and in fact, I think they found that, you know, whenever there was something to talk about, such as the, you know, the crash of 2008, then they, they actually were interested because, you know, things weren't sort of pre so pre-cooked um, as they as as they might have been, so that's always a challenge. It's a challenge with you know every international um, body. The ambassadors like to think that they have sorted out the communique of the European Council, the conclusions of the European Council. But the leaders very often go their own way, and then there are disputes about you know G seven communiques and so on. You know, are they are they too dull because they're too consensual, etc. Et, et um, but keeping but keeping it interesting is certainly um, you know an important an important theme. Um, just just on the Irish government again, and uh, and the wider relationship. I mean, I think there have been a number of certainly determined uh, efforts by the Irish government to to show its commitment to the relationship, and of course a recognition that the relationship is not just with London. Um, our consulate um, in in Scotland continues to function. It's now been there for twenty plus years, and Dan Mulhall, whom you mentioned earlier, uh, was the the first consul general. Michael Lonergan, who's now the political councillor in London, was the, the vice consul. The consulate in Wales, um, which closed for a period during the um, austerity period, has reopened. There's a new consulate in Manchester to cover Northern England, and so you know the and the embassy at London remains strong. So those are all I think aspects of commitment, um, and it's this particular effort I think with the Scots again always to find areas of common concern, um, and and interest. But the key relationship you're right is London Dublin. And especially when it's you know, related to Northern Ireland, and of course, I mean, again, there's also interparliamentary cooperation, which has worked well um, between you know Westminster and the Oireachtas over the over the years. So there are many ways uh, in the, but at the same time, you could have as many um, structures and channels as you want, but you need the political will on both sides to make it work. And the Irish government is facing at the moment, I think, you know, a British government. Which is very difficult to deal with for a range of reasons, um, not just Brexit re- related, but also to do maybe with personalities, overall approach to the world, um, and 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 everything else. But um, so, Tina, are there any sort of final points that you wanted to touch on before we uh, we wrap it up? I suppose two points that come to mind just based on what you've just said. I think yes, political will obviously is needed, um, but political will is based on interests. So while I know at the moment it's particularly tough um, with this British government at the moment, I think in the longer term and even medium term, there is an interest for both governments to work together on Northern Ireland because it is only a post-conflict situation. It's not stable yet fully. And secondly, as regards how these things have operated and the difficulties that the pre-cooked nature of, of these meetings, which can be therefore boring and lacking in teeth maybe sometimes, I think the world has changed so much now that 
perhaps there is a need, at least informally, to review how these things are used because there is much more scope and perhaps need for them now, these institutions, the BIIGC and the BIC, to, to have more teeth and to deal more substantively with issues and with strategy um, would be my, my two main points. And just finally, on Wales and Scotland, it's nearly ironic perhaps, but Dublin and Ireland is, is developing such links that are east-west um, and perhaps there's scope there to engage unionists more as well. One, Sorry, I, I know I said I was giving you the last word, but uh, one final point which just, of course, occurred to me, which perhaps we one of us could have made earlier, is to say that if indeed, I mean, one was in a situation where uh, serious consideration was being given to a referendum on Irish unity in Northern Ireland, uh, the BWIGC would obviously be a, a vehicle uh, for discussion, very intense discussion and cooperation between the two governments, which I think other papers in the Aaron series have made it abundantly clear uh, would be essential, both before a referendum and depending on the outcome after after a referendum as, as well. And the very fact, of, I suppose, that members of the Northern Ireland executive therefore the political parties, could be associated, could be helpful as well in making it seem or in ensuring that it wasn't just a matter of the two governments deciding things over the heads of, of all of the uh, all of the parties. Um, though, of course, if Sinn Féin are in government, both North and South, that's another another matter. Um, however, I won't go down that road. Um, Attain, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, no, sorry, Attain wants to come back. This is, the, <laughs> this is in a good conversation. Um, there's always a back and forth. <laughs> So um, I suppose I'm just wary, and I agree completely, that the BIIGC could be very useful in the context of unification. I'm very wary of the debate being about it being within that context at all, which is not what you've done, but because it can be, in some sense, stated as a reassurance to unionists, um, which actually, if I were a unionist, would actually make it more poisonous to me if it's part of an agenda or in some way um, implying that this is a vehicle which will help unionists because unification will happen. It becomes automatically linked. So I'm very wary of that. And I think uh, Connor and myself have written about that or will will be writing um, soon about that. But that's just I know that's not what you're saying, but I am wary about how it can be used for an agenda. Yes, absolutely. I know I think my own I'm just commenting that if and when if and when these issues have to be addressed in a really kind of detailed, practical way, th- then it clearly could be a, a, a venue for, for that, maybe a venue as opposed to a vehicle. Etienne Tannum, thank you so much. Thank you. Aaron's it's a joint project of the Royal Irish Academy, the premier All-Ireland Scholarly Institution, and the Keogh Norton Institute for Irish Studies at the University of Notre Dame's Keogh School of Global Affairs. Its mission is to publish authoritative, independent and non-partisan analysis and research on constitutional, institutional and policy options for Ireland, North and South in a post-Brexit context. Now, if you've enjoyed this podcast, you can find more and read the research in full on this and on all the other articles at aaronsproject.com. And my thanks to everybody for listening to this podcast. Thank you. Thank you.